Welcome to In The Isles, the movie and TV podcast that is not on Twitter, so don't try and look up our tweets from 10 years ago. I'm James Rothwell. I'm Dan Acton. This week, we're going to talk about what we've been watching on TV. We'll talk some real news, and our main review is The Killing of Two Lovers, now available to stream online and watch in UK cinemas. Daniel, how are you? I've been better. I've been... A lot better, James. Faithful listeners will know. I've had some bin drama over the last 12 months. Someone's nicked me red bin again. I wish that was the most important thing in my week that's affected me, but it's not. Turns out Amazon, good old faithful Amazon, are not to be trusted anymore. I'm compelled to never shop with them ever again. I'm going to try and keep this brief, but I ordered a coffee machine in November. It was faulty. They repaired it. It was faulty again. They replaced it. Then they sent me £60 randomly as a refund, even though I still had it. I thought, I'm not saying anything about this. But then they charged me the full non-discounted price of the coffee machine back, £154. So I rang them. I complained. It took forever to actually work out what had gone on. They said, we're sorry. We owe you £87. We'll refund it here. We'll do that right now. That conversation happened twice. I never got the refund. Rang them the other day. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, we didn't issue you the refund. We apologise. Sorted. I've done it now. Turned out they hadn't done it. They just charged me an extra £87. Then I rang up and was shouted at by a customer service representative telling me that I was wrong. They'd already given me the refund and I needed to just stop them out of there. So then I basically got my own way. They've refunded it, mate. But I told them that I had no money in my bank account. I couldn't feed my family. What were they going to do about it? And uh, they gave me a £50 credit. And then I ordered a lot of board games. Jeff Bezos should be working on customer service, not flying to space. Exactly. That was where I was going next with it as well. If they refused me the £50, I was going to say, you're not telling me Jeff Bezos doesn't have £50 to spare me to feed my family. But we didn't get that far. It was fine. James, let's start talking about things that people actually want to hear about. What have you been watching this week? Time on the BBC, which is in the coveted Sunday 9pm slot. I've watched all three episodes on BBC iPlayer. Is that three that are currently available or is it three episodes in total? Three episodes in total. All right. Sean Bean goes to prison for four years for a crime he did commit. He's joined by the prison officer, Stephen Graham, who's his support officer, and he has his own problems to deal with. They are both pushed to their limits in these three episodes. This is going to be in the top five at the end of the year, I'm sure. Sean Bean and Stephen Graham put in some of their best work ever. It's a masterclass. It is hard going. It's enraging and anxiety inducing. But it's a long time since I was this invested in characters in a piece of media. I badly wanted Sean Bean to make it through. Okay. And it's not scene after scene of prison misery interspersed with speeches about government prison funding. It's about these two characters and the people around them. You get to learn quite a lot about the other men in prison as well and learn about their stories. And there is a story there about survival and prison smuggling, but it's elevated into the stratosphere by these two lead men. I absolutely loved it. Classic, high-quality British drama. Sold. Right, I'll be watching that. And three episodes, very quick. I was in tears at the end. Oh. 
See, I always put, it's put me off now. Don't want to put myself through that. Have enough but, of the MasterChef Australia. Happy or sad tears, I won't say. So that's time on the BBC. What else have you been watching? To keep us firmly in the mainstream this episode, Loki on Disney Plus, first episode only. It's entertaining. It's the most straightforwardly entertaining of the three Disney Plus MCU programs up to now. I think you'd have to be a Loki fangirl to absolutely love it. The first episode is very much a setup. There's a lot of exposition to cover around the Time Variance Authority, TVA, who essentially ensure that there is only one timeline and time travellers don't create divergent timelines. This is my hot take. The whole series is designed to not have an impact on anything in the wider MCU. The TVA and Loki team up, operate in secret, and their whole story is making sure that nothing happens in the wider world and there'll be no impact on anything else. And what this really is, is a lengthy introduction of the concept of multiverse creation, which is what Doctor Strange 2 Multiverse of Madness will be about. But you won't need to have actually seen Loki to understand the events of Doctor Strange 2. So not overly enthusiastic about this, but it's perfectly serviceable. Serviceable, yeah. It delivers an entertaining Marvel action, fun product thing. And just not not to correct you, but fangirls would like it. But also fanboys, can't forget them, because this is a gender-fluid character after all. Anything else? The number one show on Netflix, Sweet Tooth. Oh, I really wanted to watch this. What did you think? I've watched all eight episodes, so my judgment is valid. I came to write my notes for this episode, and I'd forgotten that I'd watched it. And I actually panicked because I thought I was losing my memories. I had no idea, and I've had to really think hard. Apple, Amazon Prime, Netflix, it was Sweet Tooth. Half Deer Boy goes into the world 10 years after a virus wipes out most of the population. There are animal-human hybrids, and they're hunted by the last men. Remember that name. A doctor off somewhere else is trying to find a cure for the virus in a strangely clean and safe suburban environment, even though it's 10 years after the apocalypse. It's wildly and massively overrated. It's an acceptable vanilla Netflix program. The pacing is atrocious. The first episode is life in the woods with his father from birth to 10 years old. Gus, the main character, the dear boy, he learns some basic facts before moving on. And that's the first hour. Imagine if Star Wars was Luke spending a full hour on the farm with his aunt and uncle. You don't need it. Two female characters outrun a bad guy and they say, I'm glad there are hardly any men left in the world. So am I. Give me a king break. But Netflix doesn't have an agenda. I did finish it, so it must have had something going for it, but it's not worth the ratings it's getting. Oh, very disappointed. And this, did you say it was based on a DC property? The DC comic is said to be much bleaker. If you just Google it, you'll see just from the art style, it's a much bleaker tone, I think, the comic. This is a more happy, bright, clean, sanitized Netflix vanilla program with a lot of happy singer-songwriter soundtrack as they're running through these beautiful green fields, which is weird considering it's 10 years after the apocalypse and everyone is dead. Tonally, it's very odd. Well, it didn't speak to you and I hold your opinion in very high regard. 
but I might just give it a go and see see what I think. I didn't ask how you were. Are you all right? I'm okay, thank you. Yeah, I'm all right. Daniel, what have you been watching? First on my list this week, one of two, Lizzie's story on Apple TV. Or is it? Because it's actually pronounced Lisey, Lisey's story. Julianne Moore is Lisey in this, and it's based on a Stephen King book and one that King himself deems to be his best work. So I, I can only imagine this is why he's decided to write the screenplay or teleplay for this, because it, he's quite precious about it. I don't think I really need to say it, but I will anyway. Stephen King adaptations, everyone knows they're notorious for being a mixed bag. Sometimes they're absolute classics. Shawshank, Green Mile, Stand By Me, the list goes on. But the list of duds is probably equal to the successes, and I'm not going to name all those. This so far is an odd beast of a program. I'm not too sure what I think about it after streaming the first two episodes. Is it a love story? Is it horror? Is it a psychological thriller? Is it grounded in reality? Are there some supernatural elements to it? Is it all of the above? I don't really know. Julianne Moore plays the wife of a famous author who is played by Clive Owen and he tragically dies. She subsequently is stalked slash victimised by an obsessive fan who's trying to ensure that all this unpublished work that he has, her late husband, he wants it to see the light of day. So she's navigating this scary scenario with someone just constantly pestering her and being quite aggressive when it comes to this. But she's also uncovering secrets about a marriage at the same time because her husband has, through his death, set forth a journey of uncovering a load of clues, which does make you think, what's wrong with you? Why did you do this to your wife? Why set a load of clues? Do you know, just tell her what the situation is. Anyway, also alongside that, she's dealing with the mental deterioration of her sister. And I don't want to say any more than that, because those things that I've mentioned, they're not anywhere near as straightforward as they sound. There's a great deal more to it. And it doesn't spoil it, but there's a scene where Clive Owen, who is dead, appears to Julianne Moore's mentally ill sister and vomits water into her mouth. And I don't know what's going on. I do not know what's going on. It's obviously setting up its stall slowly. I do think there's enough mystery teased that it will keep me engaged, or it has so far. There's also some really striking visuals in this as well. It's it's very well shot, and it definitely does have a, a well-established sense of atmosphere. I like it. I like it a lot, but I'm just not 100% sure on what I'm watching. So I'll continue, and I'll let you know as the series goes on. But so far, I would recommend it. I wasn't sure on that one because the reviews were so bad that I ignored it, which I normally don't do. But if you've said that, I think I will. Give it a go. It reminds me from a tone point of view of The Third Day, which I know we both liked, and that was a bit of a mixed reception from critics. So maybe it is one that you will like. What else have you been watching? So last week you made two trips to the cinema and I felt as though I'd not played my part. So this week I thought I'm going to do the same. I'm going to go to the cinema at least once because we weren't required to because this week's main review, although appearing in cinemas, is also available on streaming services. So I thought, no, make the effort, do the trip. And I went to watch Spiral. Last week, we reviewed The Country in Three. That was one of my most anticipated films of the summer. It disappointed me, to put it mildly. Go back and listen if you want to hear me go medieval on it. This was yet another on that most anticipated list. I do want to make it clear, though, I don't hold the Saw franchise in such esteem as I do The Conjuring. And I'm not just saying that so that people don't switch off and say, he likes Saw, not listening. The Saw films 
to me, they've just always been a nasty bit of fun entertainment. And it did lose its way significantly when they ran out of ideas. Basically, the entire second half of films that they released, five to eight, were a bit piss poor, really. But this was supposed to breathe new life back into the franchise. I'm sure everybody knows. Apologies if you don't. Jigsaw, Tobin Bell, he's now dead. So the question is, how are they going to reinvigorate this? As is customary for me, I've stayed clear of any trailers. So the only details that I knew going into this were around the cast and that we have a bit more talent than we used to see in a Saw film in the form of Samuel L. Jackson and Chris Rock. For some reason, I think I spoke about this when we were discussing our most anticipated films. I thought that Chris Rock was going to play a serious role, but all hope of that just disappears within five minutes. It's not that he's not good. It's just not the departure from him that I was expecting. He pretty much does a stand-up set analysing the post-woke world's political correctness of Forrest Gump. And, he, you know, he's, he's, he's a wise-cracking, world-weary detective and he champions integrity and justice whilst being surrounded by a corrupt police force, which, by the way, is the subject of the new Killers Focus. So he wants to bring down this systemic corruption within the police department. You might argue that it's so lazily attempting to make some sort of political message in light of recent events. It probably is that, but it has nothing profound to say about it. Like I've said, I wasn't expecting anything groundbreaking, but unfortunately it just sticks to the same old formula that we've seen throughout the other films. There's nothing inventive here. It's just more of what you've come to expect of the Saw films, but minus a compelling villain at the centre of it. And actually on that too, so everyone's used to Tobin Bell and he's got this raspy, creepy, intimidating voice. I want to play a game. The Jigsaw substitute in this film is like the most politest murderer on the planet. I want to play a game. Is it okay if I just torture you for the next two hours? He doesn't say that. But that's the sort of tone of voice. And I thought, how is this supposed to be creepy at all? And maybe it's that juxtaposition between the tone of voice and what he's actually saying to the victims. It's supposed to be creepy, but it didn't work. The torture porn aspect of each and every Saw film that exists here, and there's some suitably grotesque and sickening traps that the killer subjects his victims to, Minor spoiler, because I think if you go in knowing this, you might enjoy it a bit more. It doesn't attempt to tie it back to the other films. They've done that in the past in arguably inventive, but sometimes ridiculous ways. This is setting up a brand new direction for the franchise. But as I say, it's just doing the same thing. It's hitting reset and offering us what we had before. And because of that, it felt like a redundant exercise, if I'm being completely honest. But I was entertained. It held my interest. And I think if you're not tired of the Saw films, I'm sure you'll be reasonably satisfied. Is Spiral better than The Conjuring 3? It's more enjoyable, but I don't know if that's because my expectations were a lot lower with this film. It's hard to quantify, if I'm being completely honest. But never was I bored, whereas I actually felt in The Conjuring 3, please let this end now. Oh, one more thing on it as well. So the Saw films have never been like jump scares. They've always meant to just sicken you. But they have a jump scare and they do the same jump scare five times. It's basically the killer appears out of nowhere, puts a bag over someone's head and it gives this like ee! sound five times. That's lazy. Speaking of lazy, let's stick to the same format and go on to real news. It's the real thing. It is now... Real, real news, news. The BAFTA TV Awards happened, but we don't care. No one else cares. We're not going to talk about it. What have you got for news? 
very quick one, but obviously last week I reviewed or gave my final thoughts on Murray of Easttown, a limited HBO series. Limited, turns out. Not that limited after all, because it's been such a success. Obviously, they're going to renew it for another series. I say that. They want to, but they obviously need an idea first. So it's back on the creator to come up with an engaging enough story for them to commit to a second series. Kate Winslet's all for it. She loved playing the role. Time will tell. We'll see what happens with that. Even though it ended quite perfectly, I want to see more of this character and I'd definitely entertain a second series. So I'm excited that it could potentially not be the end. It's broken through, hasn't it, as a true hit Mm. everyone is talking about it a lot of articles about kate winslet wanting to look more natural on the poster and wanting her belly to not be removed in love scenes a lot of clickbait about that but i think the key message is that it's genuinely very 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 excellent and good what have you got for us what's happened I discussed Jupiter's Legacy on a previous episode. I wasn't keen, didn't like it, didn't finish it, didn't get good reviews. Cancelled already, cancelled, cancelled. It's dead. It is dead. Well, I'm sure you're sorry to see it go. I am. And Shadow and Bone, which I tried to watch, gave up, wasn't aimed at me. That's been renewed for season two. According to Netflix, 55 million member households tuned in for Shadow and Bone. Netflix haven't said how many people tuned in for Jupiter's Legacy. It speaks for itself, doesn't it? <laughs> Not said it. It's gone already. In the previous episode, we talked about there being too much choice. We talked about in the age of the streaming wars, how things get killed very quickly. Nothing has a chance to grow or get a following. This is a really good example of that, I think. Jupiter's Legacy, if you look at the audience response, people do like it. It's got fans, but it launched on May the 7th, right? May the 7th. And we're talking here on June the 9th, and it's already dead. It'd be interesting to see what happens with this, though. So Netflix have become quite prolific, haven't they, over the last few years for picking up things that have been cancelled by other networks. But I don't think, don't hold me to this, I don't think we've seen it the other way around where a Netflix show has been cancelled and picked up by somebody else. Because I was quite a fan of you. Have you heard of Prodigal Son? No. It's a crime thriller with Martin Sheen playing a serial killer and another Brit in the lead role, even though it's an American character. Anyway, that got cancelled by Fox, and that's been shopped around for the minute. So if there's any fans of that out there, that could have life breathed back into it as well. Just, just so you know. Hello, I'd like to order an opinion, please. This film is new, fresh point of view. Call me sit back, this is a fact. We in the aisles, here are some aisles. Thoughts in sync, tell you what to think. I'll listen to you, but please don't rap again. This week's main review is The Killing of Two Lovers. Hey, Alex. Yeah? What do you call a pile of kittens? What? A meowton. Come on, Dad. Meowton! Come on, boy. You working? Yeah. This early? Yeah, Dad. Stop digging. I think we're doing the right thing. David, I love you. You love me. We're trying to figure this out. By the time I'm losing her, Dad. Love is a feeling, and feelings, they move in, they move out. Darling, Mom's cheating on you. Hardcore cuckold action hits the mainstream with the killing of two lovers. Hot wife Nikki is watched by husband David in bed with her hunky bull. 
What follows is a raunchy 84-minute sex fest, including car chases, rocket ships, all set against the epic and sweeping landscape of the American West. You've missled this entirely. (laughs) But I loved it. David desperately tries to keep his family of six together during a separation from his wife. They both agree to see other people, but David struggles to grapple with his wife's new relationship. Sex fest. Daniel, what did you think of the killing of two lovers? I don't want to sit on the fence, but I might actually rely on your point of view to fully formulate my opinion. The opening shot of this film is him, as in David, the protagonist, pointing a gun at a couple in bed. And given the title of this film, it's safe to assume where the film's going. Or at least you think it is. It's a very small scale film. There's not much action here. It actually reminded me a tiny bit, not thematically, but of Nomadland, just from an aesthetic point of view. It is a character piece and it's all about the drama that unfolds between this fractured couple's marriage. That doesn't make it a bad thing that it's a character piece. I like those sort of films where it's more of an exploration of very relatable everyday scenarios. It's just a shame that I couldn't fully relate to this. Thankfully, I've never been through a divorce or a separation of this magnitude. I've had failed relationships, and that has been heartbreaking. Believe me, and it's, you know, can change your world. But when you're married and you have kids, I can only assume that pain is amplified a thousand times over. So from a universal theme point of view, I got it. I understood it. But as I say, I can't say I directly related with it. Despite that, though, I think the film does a very good job of letting you feel that emotional turmoil that David goes through. The performances are very strong. I like the one take or one shot scenes that we get that feel very authentic. Yeah, there's other things to discuss generally before we head into spoilers, but that's high level what my observations were. What about you, James? It's a Marmite film, isn't it? Well, it's it's not a Marmite film because you're on the fence, but I'm going to say that anyway because that's what I've got written down. It's a Marmite <laughs> film, isn't it? The plot after that opening shot that you've mentioned is David living his daily life and struggling with this open relationship. It's glacially paced, a glacially paced bore fest, unless you're invested in David's struggle. And I was, not that I can relate to it, but I was invested. You get blue balls from not seeing the violence at the start and you wonder, well, when is this violent explosion going to come? And that hangs over everything and the sound design keeps that tension going even though on the surface there isn't that much happening nomadland excellent comparison visually it's very very similar isn't it i thought it was like marriage story on a budget it's about ending a marriage but keeping the family together it's shot in a way that makes me appreciate the art of cinematography well because it's lacking here (laughs) (laughs) the, the, the opposite the opposite I don't have the expertise or the terminology to explain what's happening. I don't know exactly what they're doing with the framing of the shots, but they are doing something that draws me in. Entire scenes happen in one static shot, and sometimes it's shot from quite far away, but you can still feel what's happening. I really liked how it was shot, even though I can't explain exactly what they're doing. I do know what you mean. It it made you feel present in the moment, almost like a bit of a voyeuristic observer as to what's going on, as if you're on that street corner just witnessing a bit of a family drama and going, oh, rubbernecking, like, have a look at this, look what's going on. Felt yeah. a bit like that to me. And in one of the early scenes when David visits his father in bed, it's just the camera in the corner of the room pointing at the bed with David stood talking to him. And if you were to try to 
replicate that and say, oh, well, it's easy to make a film, just stick a camera in the corner of a room. It wouldn't look like that. There's, mm. there's something else very skilled going on that makes that look than more than they've just stuck a camera in the corner of the room and pointed it at the bed. I do get where you're coming from. I can't put my finger on it either. The acting is excellent. It feels improvised. It's so raw. It's raw, like you said. It's and real. I'm sure it's not improvised, but it's so natural. And now that you've compared it to Nomadland, I feel like, well, if I like this so much, why didn't I like Nomadland? But th there was something different about this. Something special, I would even say. So I'm not on the fence. I'm very much on one side of the fence, the side of the fence that is labelled, I like this film, and that's where I'm stood. I wanted to bring back the discussion to what you referenced before around the sound design. So it reminds me of the cinematography in a way. I can't put my finger on why it works for me. But it really did because it's not, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no musical score. It's just like an amalgamation of just random noises which create a music sounding effect, should I say? You've got like a creaking door, a backfiring car, a door shutting or what sounds like a gun chamber being revolved. I liked it because I, I might be overthinking this, but I thought that almost gave you an understanding of what's going around in his head. It was like all these weird noises of things almost breaking. Because there's one bit that sounds like a ship that's just creaking away. And I thought, oh, maybe this points to his fragility when it comes to his mindset. I, I, probably me thinking a bit too deeply about it there. But it works for me. I liked it. I did like it. I really liked that as well. Those moments of, of sound, and you think you have described them really well, it's like they're sound cues for the next scene that never comes. Mm. There's a technical word for it that I can't think of. One of the earliest examples of it is in uh, Lawrence of Arabia, where there's a scene where Lawrence is just sat in an office and you hear the sound of this tanker on the Suez Canal. And then it cuts visually to the tanker on the Suez Canal. It's things like that. So you think that if you're going to hear the cocking of a gun, that's setting up for something. But that something never comes. It's all just turning over in his head. It never fails to amaze me how you can bring Lawrence of Arabia into any conversation. <laughs> Get off your soapbox, James. I'm only joking. I will watch it. I feel like it's a desperate ploy to just make me watch it so you never discuss it again. Do you know um you know the scene? This is early on. I don't think it's a spoiler. So David follows the new lover Derek to the convenience store and David pours a cup of coffee for himself. Derek, the new lover asks David to fill up his coffee for him. Yeah, it infuriated me. This one's it, 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 in the face. Exactly the same. Exactly the same. So David has to make coffee for his wife's new boyfriend. Whilst remaining civil because he's in a public setting as well. It was, I felt the tension there. It was an unbelievable scene. So you never actually see Derek and Nikki in bed together. You don't see the hot cuckold action but you see the coffee scene and that was so infuriating and so emasculating for David. The rage that is there. And it is very quietly thing. built upon, isn't it, with these little things that just push him ever so more over the edge. It's a gradual build-up that I liked. I did like the pacing of this, even though you could argue, like you said, not a lot goes on. Yeah, there is a scene of him throwing bundles of sticks onto the back of a truck and that's it, that's the scene. One thing that I did really like, because I feel as though it's quite subtle, this character, David, under the strain and pressure that he has with his marriage, basically crumbling and his wife seeing somebody else, 
he does things that look really innocuous in terms of he visits his children at his own home at ridiculous clock in the morning and has a conversation through them uh, with them through the window. And not, none of that felt strange to me because I thought, you, you know why he's doing this. He misses his kids and he doesn't want to feel like there's this disconnect. It didn't feel alien. It was only when his wife pointed out how bloody weird it is to do that, that I thought, oh God, yeah, it is. And I, I thought, you really brought me into his psychology here to where I'm like, oh, I'm with him. I know why he's doing these things, even though it's actually a bit batshit crazy. I liked that. You're right. You follow him round and you never actually see the inside of the family home, the original mm. family home, where, where the wife, Nikki, lives with the kids. You never see inside that. I want to get into the weeds now and, and try to make a clever point. It made me, th- <laughs> this film made me think of a book that I haven't read, but that someone told me about called The Descent of Man by Grayson Perry, who you might recognise as a famous artist in the UK. One of the ideas in the book is that men have usually been pushed to a more primal, violent, caveman-like direction, and men, without the chance to be in touch with their tender emotional side, tend to act more aggressively, even when they're sad and upset. That's an oversimplification, and it doesn't fit completely with this film, but what I thought was happening in the film was David is a simple man, and violence is his first response but that isn't an option in the world that he lives in so he doesn't know what else to do he doesn't have the maturity to respond in any other way so that's why the rest of the film he's meandering about punching a dummy shooting a dummy and can't deal with this situation he's unequipped if male violence isn't an option for him very astute observation there james i think he might be bang on the money but be a different film if it was set in the UK, wouldn't it? Because he wouldn't have access to guns so easily. Point made, leave it there. Just one thing before we recommend it, because I think it should come with a caveat if we say we do. I personally don't feel like you should go and watch this in a cinema because it's shot in a four by three aspect ratio. Why not just watch it on your telly? You're not going to get the widescreen experience in a cinema. It doesn't lend itself to that. Would you agree that it's best kept within the home? I agree, yeah. You can consume it in the home on Curzon Home Cinema, so I would agree with that, yeah, which is what we've done. Let's ask the big question. Daniel, would you recommend The Killing of Two Lovers? Right, so I said at the beginning of this review that I'm sitting on the fence and I don't want to feel like I'm just a sheep because you, I'm thinking you're leaning towards, yes, you're definitely going to recommend it. The only reason why I'm a bit me is because this has just had rave reviews, absolute rave reviews, and I do think it's good and I enjoyed it. I just question whether it's quite as good as people are saying it is, but I think you hinting towards there being a deeper subtext behind this that I've possibly not read into would warrant those reviews that I've not dug into. So that's a very long way around saying, yes, I'd recommend it. James, what about you? Yes, I would recommend The Killing of Two Lovers. And I think we've already set your expectations to be nothing happens, so you can't be disappointed. Let's go into spoilers. Bruce Willis. Real name is Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. The events that we've discussed happen. David and Nikki are in an open relationship. Nikki's obviously having more success. David still spends time with his children when it's his time. Fast forward to the end of the film. David and Derek get into a heated argument. Derek beats the hell out of David. He hits a sucker punch kicks him in the head several times. David crashes his car when he drives off. Cut to David and Nikki are back together. The family's back together. Everything's fine. They go shopping, get in the car, cut to credits. Shocked me 
not just the act of violence that I didn't see coming. And I didn't see it coming, even though, you know, it's kind of the catalyst for what you think the film's title is referring to. He's had the shit beating out of them. He's going to go and kill him now. And then, oh, no, you played a trick on me. That's not what's going to happen at all. So I liked that, as I said at the beginning of my review, I thought I knew full well where we were going with this. And then, no, completely turned it on its head. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that as well. It was actually really clever. The opening title fills the whole screen. The Killing of Two Lovers. Opening shot is David holding a gun. You think, well, we know where this is going. But no, you don't. Expectations subverted. I don't know about you, but my heart was pounding for that whole final confrontation because you think this is it. David is going to lose it. We know the gun is in the car. This is it. I was so anxious waiting for the violence to come and then when yeah. it does come it's still shocking because like i say it's, it's it's not what you expect derek just gets a cheap shot no i was i wasn't literally on the edge of my seat because i was laying in bed but if i was i would have been if that makes sense that I makes it does you were leaning forward slightly from your horizontal position on the bed yes <laughs> what were your impressions of his wife in this so I don't want to go into problematic territory, but I really don't think she aided this situation and how it played out because there's a lot of tenderness at points with her character, which may lead him towards, yes, we are going to reconcile. And then behaviorally, that's not what's going on. And I just thought, hang on a minute, you're playing with this guy's feelings, love. Are you referring to the scene where they go on the date, which is actually them sitting in a car and... Driving around the block. <laughs> he sings to her and she is being very nice to him, isn't isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. What I think's going on is that she wants to end the relationship, but she's trying to do it in a slower way. Let's have an open relationship and gradually grow apart and then split up. But it's obviously not worked at all. It's backfired <laughs> horribly. And what's going on under the, under the surface is that she's got a new boyfriend obviously but she's also getting pretty successful in her career as well and it seems like she's moving on and i do get all that but for me it pushed me over the edge when by all means if you've agreed to this open relationship that's fine don't have the guy you're seeing on the side in your husband's house with your children that's taking it a step too far and that's why him resorting to shooting a dummy in a field target practicing effectively for what he's going to do i was like i'm with this guy fair enough resort to murder because she is taking the piss out of you mate that's how that's how i felt i can see where you're coming from with that what i was thinking like i said before was there is a way to deal with this mature situation and Mm. david can't handle it yeah but nikki's not helping And I do want to stipulate as well, I am not saying David does absolutely nothing wrong in this film. It's all the woman's fault. I'm not saying that in the slightest. I just think she could have made a few tiny changes, which in reality are massively significant that would have changed what happened here. But then again, we wouldn't have a film. But it's just how I was left feeling towards her was a bit like, yeah. What about the fact, though, that they do end up together in the end? That the trajectory is obviously... She's moving on. She's got a new job, got a new boyfriend. David has to accept it eventually. No, that's not what's happened. Clearly at the end, they're back together again. The family's back together. So what does that mean? Is she is she actually happy? Is she back together with him out of like pity? Because she runs after him. She, she chases after him and they hug and they say, I love you after Derek's beating the crap out of him. But is, is it good that they're back together? Because there, there, there were presumably good reasons for them to split up. Yeah, you you could look at it in two ways. One, it is that, and through seeing 
a very ridiculously aggressive behavior from her partner, her boyfriend, should I say, towards her ex-husband. She thought, oh, maybe I didn't have it that bad after all, because that his reaction is so full on. There was no need for that level of violence that might have called her to question the whole thing and think, oh, actually, yeah, maybe I will go with this. But I do lean towards the more cynical view of she's with him out of guilt and pity because of what's happened because ultimately not saying she's solely responsible but she's contributed to how this unfolds and i think that's why she ends up back with him yeah i agree i agree and just to be clear i don't think derek was a good option based on his violence at the end i'm not saying that the best option would have been to stay with him he was obviously not a good person very unhinged man i thought david was bad but then i saw derek just don't be with people whose names begin with d all right Harsh. (laughs) Go and tell Charlotte right now. She'll be impressed. Next week, we're continuing with the theme of male violence. And we're going to talk about Nobody, starring Bob Oldenkirk, which is newly released in the UK. Bob Oldenkirk, not your typical leading action male, is he? So this should be interesting. It should. Yeah, it should. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to wax lyrical about how great this podcast is, we don't care about negative feedback. Leave us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing us at inthealespodcast at gmail.com. And you can see all the weird and wonderful things that we post on Instagram at inthealespodcast. From now until next week, if you find that your relationship is deteriorating, you can legally go to the pub with your friends and drink until you forget about your life. Oh, we're full of sound advice this week. Right. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.